Amen. Hey, good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat and make yourselves comfortable. If we've not met yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm excited to teach today. I'm the teaching pastor, and we're going through a series in the book of Psalms. So if you brought a device or a Bible that you use, go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be in the 131st Psalm today. It's a real short one, Psalm 131. I think it's going to be a helpful one. You won't find Christ mentioned in this psalm, yet I really believe it's going to help us see Christ much more clearly in this psalm because it is about him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read it together, all three verses, so buckle up, and then we will teach our way through it. This is the word of the Lord for us today, Psalm 131, a song of ascents from David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, so we just started last week a series on the book of Psalms. Um, we're calling it anthem, though. I mean, we, we took some time last week to explain what an anthem is. It's a song, basically, which makes sense since we're in a book about poems and psalms. But an anthem is a certain kind of song because it, it elicits an emotional reaction. It captures imagination. It will unite and pull a people together for a specific cause. And so an anthem is a very pronounced Song And last week we took some time to talk about a lot of the goals we have as a, as a leadership team in going through a book like this. One of those is we want to learn, and we want to learn with you, we want to learn how we can be unfiltered emotionally before the Lord and yet still be doctrinally correct. Especially when you're under great pressure and great strain, because I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times when you're under a lot of great pressure and strain, you can be what I call emotionally awkward emotionally clumsy, because you might say something that is very guttural, very authentic and true for you, but then maybe a little bit nervous the whole time that you just said something very unbiblical to the Lord, right? A little anxious. Or you might say something that is highly doctrinally accurate, very biblically correct, but you don't really mean it. It's just right. And so of all these 150 psalms and what we'll call an album of anthems, I guess, we're going to see how our emotions can be unsanitized, how they could be authentic at the same time. In fact, the Psalms, as we said last week, it displays the full range of human emotion. There really is no emotion the human can experience that is not captured in this book. That's why John Calvin calls it an anatomy of all parts of our soul. And the unique thing about Psalms, the unique thing about this book, is it is meant both to express and form our emotions. Yes, to express how we feel, but they also have great power in forming how we feel. I mean, just consider, just for a moment, that poetry, singing, they exist because God made us with emotions. We're not just mainframes walking around, bumping into each other with nothing but thoughts and no emotions. We have imagination. We have emotional output. I was talking to my son earlier about a time where I was a freshman in high school and I got in trouble for plagiarism, okay? Now, here's the context. I'm in a class, an English class. I'm a 15-and-a-half-year-old young man, and this English class was trucking through this part of the class where we're doing poetry. 
which you can imagine how excited I was as a 15 and a half year old young man at doing any, I didn't even want to write the word poetry at that stage in my life. So now we're learning about poetry. And the assignment, the assignment was to go home, I had a week to do it, and write a poem that expressed one of my feelings. I didn't even know what I was feeling at 15 and a half. Who knows that, right? So I go home, but here's the truth. Mike Tyson's punch out doesn't play itself. No, no, no. So I spent all my time on the Nintendo playing Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, and then at midnight, the, the day before I'm supposed to turn this poem in, I find myself scrambling. So I found a book of poetry in my mom and dad's room. It's one of those books that none of you own, that no one, it was probably like six people on earth that had this book, right? And it's full of a bunch of poets' work, poets you've never even heard of, poets I'd never heard of. So I just went to page whatever and just copied one of those jokers right out of that book onto my page and put my name on the bottom. Done. Moving on. High five. So the next day, turn it in. Two weeks later, I get called into the office. I walk into the office, principal, English teacher, school counselor. And they had two things to say to me. One, you are a really good poet, Luke. Now listen, this is really skilled work. I don't think we've ever seen poetry like this come from a high school student, and you're a freshman. Listen, we need to get you into some advanced classes on poetry because we want to kind of kindle and shape this gift. And at this point, I'm thinking, oh, no. I'm starting to feel blowback on this great decision I made to plagiarize. The, the second thing that they told me, we probably need you to start spending time with this counselor over here because some of this poetry is really dark. It's emotional on a level that we're a little bit concerned and so I did what any 15 and a half year old would do, and I confessed, I copied it out of a book because for me, suspension was gonna be better than an advanced poetry class and then time with counseling. So I was suspended for a little bit. <laughs> but even those folks, even though three adults in that room knew that poetry expresses and it forms, they, they saw that as an expression of who I was, and they saw it as formative at the same time. Now, last week, we started this series off looking at Psalm 1, which is kind of the doorway to the sanctuary of the book of Psalms. And that psalm taught us what happy looks like, the blessed life, what happy looks like. We actually got to see that that psalm was about Jesus before it's about anything else, that Jesus is the fruitful tree that does not decay, that is planted and resourced perfectly by his Father. We got to see that we meditate on the things that we delight in. We actually saw a lot. We got a lot of work done last week. Today, the, the poet in David is letting us into a chamber of his soul that I really believe that all of humanity climbs and clamors to get into, and it's a place of contented quietness. It's a place of composure, a place of stillness. I mean, in a world that is squirming and thrashing and fussing and whining and discontent, in a world like that, this, this psalm is actually meant to catch our eye. Right? Now, the culture at large, because in America we have a lot of different cultures and subcultures, but in, we'll just call the culture at large, we already have anthems for our inner chamber of our hearts. Right? We already have them. We already have songs and movies and themes that express who we are and form who we are. But rather than pursuing composure and quietness in the Lord, the world would have you find it in becoming a somebody and doing something and getting somewhere. That's the cry of our generation. I mean, we just basically we come out of the womb looking to be a somebody and looking to get somewhere. That's how we come out. And that's hard because that means you've got to hustle. 
You gotta hustle to be somebody today. You gotta hustle to get somewhere. You gotta hustle to get there quick and you gotta hustle to stay there. And hustling means discontent noise because it's a life that's always in front of you. It's a life you're always stretching for, one you're always grabbing for. I mean, let's just face it. You're never going to have composure in this world if you are really busy trying to be somebody and trying to get somewhere. It's never gonna find you. You'll never have composure. As an example, I've always been a fan of rap music, always, and I'm actually old enough to have seen most of rap music's history, okay? Because, uh, because I'm 42 years old, rap's not really been around a really, really long time. In fact, my first cassette tape ever was in 1986. I was 10 years old. It was the Beastie Boys License to Ill, and that was poetry to me. I wouldn't have called it that at the time because I was super cool, but it formed me, and it expressed me, in its own different way. I mean, I sat up still, and that music changed me forever. It defined how I saw women. It defined how I saw money, power, getting ahead. It defined a lot of who I was for many years after that. Now, as much of a rap fan as I am, I'm a culture buff as well. That's what I went to school for was cultural anthropology. So as interesting as rap music is for me, the evolution of rap is even more fascinating. The evolution of rap music. Now, now, listen, some forms of rap music have evolved faster than others. That might be news to you because you, some of you thought there was only one kind of rap and it was just rap. But there are different kinds of rap and some of them have changed a little bit faster than others. And so the one I want to pick on today and just kind of point at is what's called braggadocio rap. That's not really what insiders call it, by the way. Right? That's why you've never heard it. That's what nerds and critics call it. Braggadocio rap is a kind of rap that's only come into play and grabbed the main stage maybe in the last 15 to 25 years, depending on who you look at. Right? It's a little bit like battle rap. Battle rap is basically saying, I am better than this person. My, my rap game is better than theirs. I'm a better human than that person. Braggadocio rap is not so much I am better, but it is I am best. I'm undeniable. I'm larger than life, uncomparable, undisputed. I'm not just good, I am best. As Eminem says in the last line of his song, Rap God, be a king? I think not. Why be a king when you can be a god? Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about this kind of rap that you're starting to see more and more. You have to have an image that catches up with the bragging. You have to have that image. It can't just be locked up in lyrics. You have to show that you were the best in the world. That's why the videos look like they do. That's, that's why the videos appear like they do. And here's the thing about the videos. They have spawned a small industry. See, here's a new word for you, too. Another new word. It's called flossing. Flossing is not just what you do after you eat broccoli, right? And if you're eating broccoli, by the way, and not flossing immediately afterward, you need to start doing that because it's making your breath really bad, right? But flossing is also when, as an artist, especially a rap artist, you show the world all of your luxury items, Proof that you are above the rest. I've got the Air Jordans on as I walk to the pool where there's snow leopards walking around the pool and ladies and cars and money coming down from who knows where and there's bottles of liquor, but not just any kind of liquor, you know what I'm saying, but the, like the really good liquor. You're seeing it all right there. That's called flossing. It's just proof that I really am who I say that I am. Here's the thing. None of them own that stuff. It's borrowed or it's rented. Yeah, there's a white tiger there. That snowball from the local zoo off to the side of the camera. You have a couple zookeepers, one with a trank gun, the other with a net, because snowball's going back to the zoo as soon as the video's done getting shot, right? 
There's actually a company in Salt Lake City called Ararat European Motor Cars. They make a nice living renting cars, especially to rap artists for about $1,500 an hour. That's why a lot of rap videos are made in Utah. It's because that's where this company is. So, because, I mean, let's just face it, a Subaru's not gonna get the job done, right? In a rap video. You're gonna need that yellow Ferrari. So you rent the yellow Ferrari or the pink Lamborghini, they pull it in, you lean on it for 30 seconds so they can get the shot, you take that joker back as fast as you can so you don't get charged for two hours, right? And they're making a lot of money just doing that. And that money being thrown everywhere, it's rented. People are paying money to rent money. You heard that right. People are paying money to rent money so they can rain it down in a rap video, and then there is somebody there on staff, a prop master, that catches the money after the video, counts it, makes sure it's dialed into the exact number so you don't lose your deposit on the rental of that money. Same thing with the Air Jordans. Rented. Same thing with the booze. It's borrowed. It's flossing. It's flossing. Not just the videos, either. Some of you, you caught this. It was cool for about four days in the world in social media, but Bow Wow, formerly known as Lil Bow Wow, got caught because he took a picture, allegedly, of his private jet that he was getting onto on the way to a big show. If we have that picture, do we have it? It is, here he is, travel day, New York City press run for something, something hip hop, let's go, I promise to bring y'all the hottest show ever, okay? He got busted because somebody right after this was taken saw him riding coach on Southwest. That's actually stock art. He found stock art online for a local company that will lease flights to you in their private jet, and he downloaded the picture and then uploaded it and punched it up into Instagram so that the whole watching world would think that he was a rap god. That's amazing to me. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Because in this room, I bet very few of us have been in a rap video if we were to take a straw poll. Some of you don't even own any rap music, so why does this matter, right? I mean, it's gonna be easy for me to burn through an illustration like this just for you to come out of it saying, that is so dumb. <laughs> that is so dumb. But we could just be honest for a moment. Is this just not an uncomposed soul doing what a disconsent soul does? I mean, it's just hustling to climb high and stay high. Now, your ladder might look a little different, but you've got one. We're all hustling to be somebody and to get somewhere. Our flossing might look a little different. Our hustle might look a little different. But, I mean, is it less goofy? I mean, here's some questions for you to carry just for a little while. Where is your soul the noisiest? Where is it reaching the furthest? Where you're trying to be somebody and trying to get somewhere. What's making the most static and noise for you? How do you get composure? What happens when you lose it? Let's look back at this psalm. It's only three verses. Psalm 131, because David's going to lead us here. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Okay, now we're not totally certain when this was written, but we're pretty sure that it was written in the earlier chapters of David's life because we know in the later chapters of David's life, especially around the, the moment with Bathsheba, he's actually 
losing grip on his own song lyrics. He's the opposite of this. So that's why we believe it's probably in the earlier chapters of his younger reign. Either way, you're listening to an internal conversation between him and the Lord. It's about 3,000 years old. A moment where he gives us a peek into an internal conversation he's having with God. And let me remind you, this is a man after God's own heart. That's not by David's word, by the way. God says he is a man after my own heart. God says that. David has learned composure. He's learned composure. I think he's going to show us how to do the same thing. Little disclosure for you of all the sums that I need to use and use often, this is at the top of my list. This is the biggest one for me out of all 150. Because I can lose composure in the blink of an eye. I can lose a stillness and a noise very quickly. I'm not a rapper, but my soul can be just as busy as one trying to be somebody and get somewhere. So if you're like me, this place of composure and stillness, this place of contentedness, of quiet, it's, it looks like a, a kingly place to be, a beautiful place to be. It also feels a little threatening to me as well, a little uncomfortable, right? I think Charles Spurgeon nails it. He said this in one of his devotionals. Quietude, which some men cannot abide because it reveals their inward poverty, is as a palace of cedar to the wise. For along its hallowed courts, the king in his beauty deigns to walk. It's hard for me to be quiet. It's hard for me to put myself into places where I just meditate on how satisfied I am in the Lord. It's hard for me to be still. It's hard for me to stay composed because it reveals, like he says, my inward poverty, my deep sense of need. So it's a glorious place, and it's a place of humility at the same time because it's a place of contentedness, but not the way the world tells me to get it. It's not the same. So what's creating all this noise in your life? How did David learn composure What does Jesus have to do with any of this? He's not even mentioned in this song. I think some of the the noise we feel in our soul comes from what we see in the first part of verse 1. Noise and discontent usually comes when we feel like a nobody. Usually feels like we're just unseen. We're a nobody. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. That's just another way of saying I'm not looking down my nose on others. This is speaking of pride right here. Undervaluing others, super evaluating ourself. Where we overconsider self, we underconsider others. Right? But here's the thing about pride, it's not just about me. Oh no, it's it's about you as well. Because I can't be superior unless I'm pulling you down. Pride takes two parties. I mean, if we were just to look at the super wise, sage advice from Dwight Schrute, assistant to the assistant regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, he says, I never smile if I can help it. Showing one's teeth is a submission signal in primates. So whenever someone smiles at me, all I see is a chimpanzee begging for its life. That was from the office if that was lost on you. Some forms of pride and arrogance... They're out loud for all to see. Some it's kind of hidden. I mean, we do live in a day and age where we boast about how well we can boast. So some of it is very clear to see, and some of it, like I said, is very hidden. But whether it's hidden or on display, pride does not just say, I am something in and of myself. It also says, I am right compared to you. Compared to you. This is why, friends, you can feel lousy about yourself, 
and at the very same time be able to be judgmental and critical towards others. Consider that. When you feel inferior to others, you don't typically admire them, you typically envy them, typically critical of them, maybe even hate. Consider the things like self-pity, self-hatred, timidity, fear of man. I mean, at the basic fundamental level, it's all an infatuation with the state of self. It's an overestimation. It's an over-evaluation of who we are. This is why you can be one that is perpetually losing in life, perpetually getting hit in life, and still be prideful. With a pride that requires repentance. A heart lifted up high is never content, and that's just going to create noise over time. You see, pride is comfortable in any context. It's multi-contextual. You can be super wealthy and exhibit pride. You can be a wide receiver and exhibit pride. You can be a little toddler. You can exhibit pride. You can floss in a video. You can show pride. You could sit in a pew in Knoxville, Tennessee this morning and exhibit pride. It's multi-contextual. I mean, our hustle might look a little different, but are we still not trying to be somebody and get somewhere? You know, what would finally make you somebody in your world? And what will finally make your heart quiet? Let's look at the second part of that same verse. David says something very interesting. It's rushed over often. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That's an interesting statement. What David is describing is spiritual overreach. It's blind ambition and presumption. It's just simple overreach. This need to control all the spinning variables in the world. This need to know what God is doing at any moment. This need to know things that are beyond us. It's not, he's not talking about acquiring status in society. He's not against leadership. He's not against um, high ownership. He's not against high status at all. He's against blind ambition. That's why he's saying this. Because when you're trying to control all the variables around you, you're trying to control what people think about you, you're trying to control what God is doing. When you're trying to control everything, you're going to have a noisy life. You're never going to be still inside. Never going to experience that quietness. Never going to be composed. I mean, let's just look at a partner passage. We're not going to read the whole thing. But in Philippians 2, we see Paul talking to a young church about something very similar almost as if he had just finished reading the Psalms himself, and then he turns and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition or conceit is exactly what David is talking about right here. That's exactly what he's talking about. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Paul is telling us a a bunch of things here, but one of the things he is telling us is that although tempted just like us, Christ never operated from a place of self-infatuation and overreach. He never did that. Christ did not devalue those around him so he could become superior. You're not going to find Christ hustling to become somebody and to go somewhere that everyone thought was a cool place to be. You're not going to see him Instagramming his way all the way up the ladder. It's not what you're going to find him doing. You're going to find Christ in positions where when the whole world around him is spitting out of control and everyone is noisy and discontent inside, you're going to find him composed. You're going to find him in the bow of a boat, asleep, at night, on a lake, in a storm where everyone's bailing water as fast as they can. You're going to find him composed. 
You're going to find him in front of world leaders. As they're talking about execution, you will find him silently composed. You will find him on a cross when everyone else is running. You will find him bleeding, yet also composed. You find his heart quiet. And then his disciples, they learn the same composure. That's why you see James getting pelted with rocks that will take his life. As he's forgiving those around him, about to greet Jesus, you'll find him composed. You'll find Peter chained between guards, sleeping on a cell floor. The evening before his likely execution, you're going to find him composed and fast asleep. You're going to find Paul running from city to city, knowing that he's about to go into a city where they're already talking about how to kill him. You're going to find him composed. In fact, one of my favorite passages by Paul is in Philippians 4.11. Don't turn there. It'll be up on the screen. I'll read it to you. He says, I have learned. I like that key word that everyone keeps using. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I am to be content. It's almost as if Psalm 131 was his devotional this morning. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the doing all things in Christ, that does not mean I am able to hustle better than everyone else because Christ is in me. I'm not able to be a somebody and get somewhere faster than everybody else because Christ is in me. This thing that Christ does in us is give us, it just gives us a quiet soul, a contented spirit. And so what I appreciate about David in a very short amount of time, he gives us a picture. Last week our picture was the tree, the fruitful tree. This week it's a it's a composed kid. It's a, it's a child. Once squirmy and fussy and whiny, now totally weaned. You see, when an unweaned child does not get what child wants, there's fussing, right? There's discontent. I mean, if you're a parent, you know exactly what this is like. I mean, the, the kid is going to express all kinds of emotions over the full range of what we would just call noisy. But adults, friends, we do the same thing. We can be equally unweaned, anxious, jealous, envious, depressed, thrashing, discontent, confused. I mean, if we're not taken care of immediately, we too express a full range of emotions that we could just call noisy. Same thing. I'm the chief of this too. I mean, it takes me 6.3 seconds to lose composure if I'm still looking at a buffering symbol. Spinning on whatever screen I'm watching. If that symbol is there after six seconds, that's it. That's all it took. For some of us, it's just not being noticed, right? Losing, coming in second, being forgotten, not getting invited, maybe not knowing what God is doing at the moment can take us right out of composure. I think the center of sin in my heart as this psalm approaches and handles me, it's just the discontent, self-regard, and overreach of one who does not trust and rest and find satisfaction in God. It's a discontent, self-regard. It's a selfish overreach whenever I'm not trusting in God and I'm not satisfied in God. You see, when the human heart does not get what the human heart wants, all it can do, its only other options are to manipulate into maneuver, into angle, into strategize, into plan. That's why you got into the last fight you got into. That's why you cussed in your heart at that red light the other day. 
It's why that person cut you off and you thought what you thought. It's why you're still in a silent treatment for someone that you know that's close. It's why we do all of those things, right? It's why we're critical when people are superior to us, all of it. We just cannot be still without being somebody and getting somewhere. It's almost impossible for us. So this psalm is a real-world psalm. Here we have David, a weaned king, talking to a perpetually unweaned people, right? Perpetually noisy. David is not internally noisy right here. He's not obsessed. He's not on the edge of fritzing out. He's not consumed with this tyrannical to-do list. Peer pressure is not eating him up. Ambition is not controlling him. Failures are not haunting him in the middle of the night. He's not spinning into a free fall full of anxieties. He's not strategizing the next 17 moves because of his fear of failure. And when he reflects on his life, it's not full of regrets. Irritation does not rule his emotions. David is quiet. He's just quiet here. He recognizes that there's just so much he simply cannot rightly understand. So he just learned to be at peace by trusting God and being satisfied in him. (laughs) I mean, I occasionally pass through this place that we're reading about. I know it when I'm there, just like you do. I feel at peace. I feel still and quiet. But it's not a place I live. It's a place I visit. (laughs) And I can find myself and know what I look like when I have walked right out of that place. I want to live there, though. So we see David. How did he learn? He learned to be quiet because he found God trustworthy and satisfying. He found God trustworthy and satisfying. Now, that's just a nice psalm. It's not a helpful song yet. I mean, it becomes helpful when we find that it's truly about Christ because a thousand years after this was put on paper for the first time, Jesus comes along and fulfills the whole thing. Jesus actually completes this psalm because God becomes man and we get another glimpse of another internal conversation that another king has. We're allowed into another moment of holy eavesdropping where we can see a wrestling, where we can see a temptation towards discontent and yet total peace be found because David reflects this psalm inconsistently, right? But Christ comes along and does it consistently. He does it perfectly, I mean, there's a patch of ground somewhere in the Middle East right now. What would have been the Garden of Gethsemane back then? I don't know what's there now. It could be a Starbucks or an overpass or a dog park. I don't know. But at one time, it was holy ground. It caught some tears. It caught some blood. It caught some sweat. It heard some prayers. It heard this precious moment where Christ says from his gut, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. I mean, do you see that that's an answer of what David was saying whenever David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Lord, you know and I don't, and I submit because I trust. We see Jesus saying it even more perfectly. He's completing David's psalm right here. He's fulfilling it with his own life. The most threatening moment in human history is right there in that garden. And Yet we have Christ expressing the most trust ever expressed on this planet. And then we see peace given more than any peace has ever been given. And because Christ found peace and stillness in the Father, you and me, we are free from hustling. (laughs) We're free from the need. 
We're free from the requirement to be somebody in this place, to get somewhere as fast as we can. And when we have a garden and a bloody cross and an empty grave that declare this to be true, this empty tomb, I mean, if anything, it buys us a quiet soul, purchases us a quiet soul. He is trustworthy. He is satisfying. So if I was to drive some application into this to see where maybe it could help us today in 2018, let's look at the idea of weaning. Weaning is going to occur when something that has meant everything to you no longer means everything in view of Jesus. When something that once meant everything to you comes to mean nothing in view of Jesus. And this is a hard experience. This is a process of bulldozing in the soul, really. Because let's just face it, it's binary. You're either quiet inside or you are not. You're either hustling or you're not. You're squirming or you're not. There's only one thing that is strong enough to overpower a noisy life. It's being loved by Christ through the power of his Holy Spirit. Being loved by Christ. I mean, friend, you need, you need help like I do, like a drowning person does. We need a hand to just lift us straight out of it. Just a holy supernatural hand. Because entrusting yourself to God's will, as David is doing, as Christ did, and trust, being satisfied in God, that's supernatural stuff. We don't do that just coming out of the womb. We don't have the, the capacity to pull that off. That's something that is supernatural in and of itself. So we have to depend on the Lord as we beg him to do these things in our life. But I can tell you what it looks like when we're growing. We can see what a trajectory looks like from someone who's doing an okay job and growing and how they are weaned. It looks like this, and we're going to move through it fast. Intelligent repentance, authentic trust, and really vocal obedience. We could call this the weaning process. The weaning process. Intelligent repentance, authentic trust, and vocal obedience. Right? Intelligent repentance, I'm putting that down just because there's such thing as a not very intelligent repentance. I think it's important to make that distinction. To be able to say that you are not something means you have to identify what you are trying to be. It needs to be done intelligently. It means being honest with your ambitions. Means being honest with where that razor edge of trust is, that place where when you are in your Garden of the Gethsemane, you say, God, I trust you this much, but I don't trust you beyond that. That's not happening. I trust you here, I don't trust you here. It means seeing it, it means calling it what it is, it means owning it, and it means being intelligent with how you repent from it. I don't think we talk very, I don't think we talk enough on how to repent whenever we do repent. There's a couple of examples. It's one thing to say, Lord, I don't trust you with my finances. I would say that's, that's a step. It's repentance. It's not very intelligent, though, because it's not very specific. And it's not even talking about why you are sinning with your finances. It's another thing, more intelligently, to say, I am using money, Lord, to build silos of safety and security for myself because I don't think you're really going to catch me. So I'm going to steal from you, I'm going to steal from the church, I'm going to steal from those around me, I'm going to serve number one, because you are not good enough, you will drop me. Now that's intelligent repentance. That's intelligent, it's calling it what it is. It's a better step. It's one thing to say, all right, Lord, I'm prideful, sorry, my bad, try harder next time. That's a step. It's just not very intelligent. But to say something like, Lord, I have a martyr complex, 
because I just think my situation's worse than everybody else's. And so anytime I'm around people, I gotta siphon all of their attention to look at me so I can bleed out and then they can see me and then I have some sort of approval. I'm critical when I don't get it. That's a different kind of repentance. That's more intelligent. But that's just one step. When you shift from an intelligent repentance, you move to an authentic trust. And this is simply just putting something down and not picking it back up. Because that's typically what we do. We will put something down and we'll stare at it and we'll squirm. Ah, put that down. It hurts. I'm going to pick it back up real quick. Right? It's one thing to say, we'll use money again. It's one thing to say, Lord, I trust you with my finances. <laughs> but... But I don't trust you. I mean, I, okay, I do trust you. But I mean, okay, but seriously, not that much. So I'm going to go ahead and do this, 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 this with my money. I'm going to put money away here. I'm going to invest in this. I'm going to build up a giant savings account. I'm going to do these. Listen, you can say you trust God, but isn't it just words at that point? You've put it down, but you just keep picking it back up. The whole idea of trust is releasing something. You can't call it trust unless there's a, just a release. i got to move fast. The last one is vocal obedience, and to be honest with you, I'm not going to spend much time on this because we have a whole sermon whenever we hit Psalm 42 that focuses largely on this. But on top of speaking specifically, repenting specifically, and putting things down and not picking them back up, we do have to speak. We have to remind our heart where peace is found, where stillness is found. I mean, just take a glance backward and you will see God creating creation through his word you have these stormy, chaotic oceans, and yet he tempers them and puts boundaries on them, taming even chaos itself. That's what you find in Genesis. Later on, you see Jesus doing something very similar, right? Where he speaks, peace be still, over a stormy lake. And then it just stops storming. And then what does he say over the chaotic and distressed soul except for peace be still? We catch a pattern really quickly. God is very good at speaking peace over chaotic things and noisy things. And we're, we're reminded of how often those things become still. So I think a measure of growth looks like silencing the noise in our heart by speaking God's truth to it and reminding it where peace can be found. Because listen, you wake up in the morning, there's just dozens and dozens of voices telling you what you need to do to succeed that day, how you need to become somebody, how you need to get somewhere as quick as possible. What are you saying? How are you communicating with your soul? It's called self-communing or preaching the gospel to yourself. Depends on which generation you're talking about. But right here, we know that when desires and fears and opinions and anxieties start circling, they demand that we hustle and climb and achieve and overreach. So you've got to do the same thing Peter and James and Jesus did. You've got to remind yourself of where content peace is found. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm, I'm going to crawl out of this sermon, but... I want you to carry some diagnostic questions with you. What I mean is, is when we have music going on up here, we'll have words on the screen, the music will be great, the lights will be a little bit darker. We carry the elements in the back, so we have bread and we have juice. Just so you know, if you're a guest here, you'll see little pockets of people go back there whenever they feel like it during the, the music to take communion. They're not leaving to go to Jason's Deli earlier than everybody else. They're actually going back there to take communion. They're coming right back to their chair. But as you do that, I always hope that you carry a couple diagnostic questions back there with you as you approach the table of communing with the Lord that symbolizes what he has done for us and what he is doing for us. 
He broke himself for us, and he's preparing a new banqueting table for all of his people one day. It's a look back, and it is a look forward as well. So as you do that, I want you to consider what is the noise going on inside of you today? Where are you rattling the most? Where's the deepest rattle in your soul? What does it look like? How do you lose your composure? What has it been taking lately to get composed? How comfortable is it for you whenever you are still, as Spurgeon says, in quietude? You know, the last verse, we're not going to teach it. I'm just going to point to it. David's not talking to God anymore. He's talking to you. He says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From this time forth and forevermore. David is longing for God's people to experience this peace and this joy. That's his longing. That's his hope here, right? It's his hope. From this time forth and forevermore. What's hard for you today when you are on that razor's edge of trust and satisfaction in God, that garden of Gethsemane moment for you, where it's hard for you today, there will be a day called forevermore where it's not going to be hard. Trust is going to be easy. Peace will be your normal. Stillness will be your every day. Hustling is over. You don't need to be a, a somebody anymore because you're worshiping a somebody. You're totally content being out on the fringe, not even being a footnote in God's story because you are so enamored and fascinated with the one who rescued you. No need to hustle. No place to get real fast because a place has been made for you, prepared for you, is waiting on you. You don't have to scratch and claw to get into it anymore. It's been handed to you. We have a space prepared for us, a place for the weary and the burden. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He means it. That's a true statement. Let me pray for you. Father, as we go into worship, just reflecting on your truth to us today, it's a simple three verses, really, but God, I can't, I am, it is, I'm still got a lot of growing to do in that. I don't think I'm alone. I think in this room, we have a lot of growing to do when it comes to becoming still. We just come out of the womb, our factory setting is just a hustle, to floss, to be bigger than everything, to know everything, to control everything. Honestly, Father, we just want to be quiet and still, to take a deep breath for our soul, just to take a deep breath. But God, we know that we cannot do it unless you rescue us into that moment. We need your hand to pull us. We need your hand. We need your voice to speak peace and stillness over our hearts. So we just invite that. We invite your Holy Spirit. We invite your Holy Spirit to show us how much we're loved and how satisfied we can be in you and how you are the ultimate somebody that you've made the ultimate somewhere for us, that all of our hustling here can stop. Lord, I know that there are some in here that are really struggling with this. They're struggling with pride, or they're struggling with overreach. And Lord, I pray that you would commune with us today, that you would change our hearts, that there would be revival in our hearts. And, and Lord, I do know that there are probably people in here that are very far from you, and the only thing that they have ever known is discontent. They've never known quietude. They've never known stillness. It's not a place that they pass through. It's not a place that they visit from time to time or even often. It's a place they've never even seen before. 
And Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would change their heart. And Lord, I pray that you would help us repent today, both of us who are close to you and far from you, that we would intelligently repent, that today would be a day that we would put things down and not pick them back up, that today would be a day we'd be honest. So Lord, we love you, and as we take communion, and as we sing, and as we pray, and as we write checks, as we high-five and hug each other, as we, we joke about last week, and we look forward to the next week, as we hug our kids, as we eat together, as we, as we do the things we do, Father, we pray that you would continually minister to us, that we would not leave this way behind us in our wake of another, just another busy week, but we would be able to meditate on the state of our heart. We love you, Jesus. You're very good. You're very noble and gentle. You're very kingly and gracious. You're brilliant and you're beautiful to us. And it's in your name that we pray and worship. Amen.